live in a world where we are saturated in dopamine and we live in a culture that encourages us to pursue it. Living in this modern age is very challenging. We have to now cope with the question of how do I live in a world in which everything is provided? And if I consume too much of it, which my reflexes compel me to do, I'm going to be even more unhappy. Dopamine is the final common pathway for all pleasurable, intoxicating, rewarding experiences. So different drugs and behaviors work on different endogenous or innate systems. There's the opioid system, there's the cannabinoid system, there's the adrenaline system, but ultimately the final common pathway of all of those rewarding substances and experiences is dopamine. So those are some thoughts and words from my guest today, Dr. Anna Lemke. She received her undergraduate degree in humanities from Yale University and her medical degree from Stanford University. She is currently professor and medical director of addiction medicine at Stanford University School of Medicine. She is also program director of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Fellowship and chief of the Stanford Addiction Medicine Dual Diagnosis Clinic. She is a diplomat of the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology and a diplomat of the American Board of Addiction Medicine. She was one of the first in the medical community to sound the alarm regarding opioid overprescription and the opioid epidemic. In 2016, she published her best-selling book on the prescription drug epidemic called Drug Dealer, MD, How Doctors Were Duped, Patients Got Hooked, and Why It's So Hard to Stop. Her book was highlighted in the New York Times as one of the top five books to read to understand the opioid epidemic. So she's joining me today as someone who wrote an incredible, incredible book called Dopamine Nation. And in this book, uh, she talks quite a bit about addiction and how our culture is sort of steeped in these frameworks, behaviors, uh, systems that actually encourage us to pursue more and more dopamine. So in this podcast episode, we are going to dive deep into the inner workings of addiction, addictive behavior, what's actually happening in the body, how we can uh, sort of hack, although I just don't like that word necessarily, but how we can begin to use the dopamine system uh, to move us away from some of these behaviors and habits that maybe we don't want. Things like you know, excessive eating, video game usage, pornography usage, sexual behavior, etc. Uh, her book has done incredibly well and has some amazing stories. Uh, if you if you are looking for a new book to read, if you have someone in your family that struggles with addiction, someone in your life that struggles with addiction, it's certainly worth checking out. And we get into a deep conversation about the role that dopamine serves, how different external structures within our world uh, actually induce this sort of dopamine hit within the body how we can create healthy habits and routines uh, to prevent us from going further down the rabbit hole of, of uh, addiction and distraction. And she provides some very real life tools and resources that we can all use uh, with regards to dealing with things like social media and pornography. So without any further delay, I hope that you enjoy this conversation. Uh, and as always, if you enjoy it and you know somebody that would enjoy listening to it, please do man it forward, share it with somebody in your life that will benefit from it, that will enjoy it. Don't forget to leave us a rating and review goes a long way uh, to getting us into the eyes and ears of other people, onto the other phones of other people. Uh, and I appreciate all the, the ratings and the comments that you have left recently. Uh, we have moved into the top 40 on uh, Apple Podcasts, actually, the top 40 in North America for the relationship podcasts. So that feels like a pretty substantial win, and I could not do it without you. So if you've been enjoying the show, please do share this episode or any of your favorites. And without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Anna Lemke. Thank you for inviting me. I'm excited to be here. Yeah. So, you know, we're going we're gonna to dig into some really interesting topics but before we do that, I have to ask you the question that I have asked almost like 300 people now on the show, which is tell us a story about a defining moment in your life that has made you who you are today. I would say the single most defining moment in my life was the death of our first child to leukemia and mm -hmm. the birth of our 
for subsequent children. Hmm. Yeah, that I can not imagine that. How how long ago was that? Oh gosh, yeah, our son would have been twenty one this year. Wow. How you know? Obviously, I don't want to go too too far into that. But how did you manage to navigate something like that and and still carry still carry through? Because I would imagine you had your career happening at that time, and I think for some people who have experienced that type of of loss and and grief or are in the throes of that right now it's sometimes helpful to hear other people's experience and so if you have any words of wisdom for the people out there what would you leave them with you know to answer that question i couldn't even answer it in a in a single sound bite that's, that's an episode <laughs> it, or it's my next book actually yeah okay great well <laughs> well i i welcome you back onto the show for that one we'll we'll carry that conversation Thank on you. next time so you, you wrote this you wrote this incredible book called dopamine nation and you've you've got some really powerful insight in it and you know at the very beginning you open with this story about this man who I was just captivated by. Like, I don't think I've read a book in a long time where the initial story just catches me in a way where I'm like, oh, you got me. You know, like you activated my dopamine. <laughs> good right. job. I know. Good, good job. But the, you know, in many ways, the 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 book is is about this dynamic between pleasure and pain and and our relationship with this sort of chemical inside of us, dopamine. So what was the spur for you? Like what pushed you and propelled you to want to write this book? Just out of curiosity. I wrote this book with a genuine desire to want to help other people. I have learned a ton from my patients. They are modern day heroes and modern day prophets. And I feel like their their wisdom is something that other people would benefit from. Mm, beautiful. Yeah, thank you. So when it comes to something like addiction, you know, there's many different forms of how we define that. There's many different forms of how we look at something uh, like addiction, whether it's substance, whether it's social media, whether it's pornography. Uh, we have a lot of men that come into our space that are that are struggling with exactly that, with porn addictions of various forms. And I'm curious to get your take on how you define pornography and is there a sorry, how you define addiction and is there a difference necessarily between something like substance abuse or social media or you know porn or sex addiction when it comes to what's happening neurologically or within the body. Yeah, so there are lots of different definitions of addiction but they all come down to basically the same thing which is the continued compulsive use of a substance or behavior despite harm to self and or others. Shorthand way to Remember the DSM criteria for that is the three C's, control, compulsion, and consequences. Another definition of addiction that, that I like, though, that's a little unorthodox, but is relevant for the book is addiction is the things we do that we lie about. Uh-huh. Okay. Can you say more about that? I feel like that, I can almost like hear my audience being like, oof. <laughs> it's one of those oof moments. Uh-huh. Yeah. The things yeah. we lie about. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Well, I mean, you know, one of the cardinal features of addiction is this, what we call the double life, where we're living our regular lives, but then on the side, we have this other life that is not known to the important people in our lives. And on some level, even hidden from ourselves through this process, we call denial, which one of my patients said is an acronym that stands for don't even know I am lying. Hmm. And I love that because it really does represent the ways in which we can have this divided brain where we're living out certain behaviors, but not even acknowledging to ourselves that they're happening. They're in this kind of dream, like waking dream-like place in our minds. And is there, like, is there some sort of advantage to that kind of behavior? Is there, is there like an evolutionary advantage to that? Is there a biochemical benefit to that? Because it seems like that's such a prevalent thing that has emerged within our species. Our brains have evolved over millions of years to approach pleasurable stimuli and avoid painful ones. And it's what's kept us alive in a world of scarcity and ever-present danger. So it makes a lot of sense that we would be wired this way. The problem is that we've now created a world of overwhelming abundance. So what was once 
an adaptive mechanism has become our Achilles heel. I would say also that, in my opinion, people with severe addiction are people who, in another time and place, would have been the most adapted among us because they would have been the ones willing to search longer and further to find that oasis in the desert. But now those individuals may be the most vulnerable in our modern society because of their predilection for addiction to these intoxicating stimuli. Yeah, interesting. And so so in many ways, the the mechanism has always been there. However, the environment that we found ourselves in has altered and changed to such a degree where it's maybe not as useful as it used to be. That's right. right. Dopamine Nation is essentially the story of how our primitive brains are not made for our modern environment. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. You talk a lot about this dichotomy between the pursuit of pleasure and the active avoidance of, of pain and the relationship between the two. Can you just say a little bit more, maybe we can start to go into this, but can you say a little bit of, of what's actually happening in the brain when we're pursuing pleasure and trying to avoid pain? Because those are two sort of different systems that are at play, if, if my understanding is correct. Yeah. So one of the most interesting discoveries in the field of neuroscience in the last 75 years is that pleasure and pain are co-located. And by that, I mean that they are processed in the same parts of the brain and they work like opposite sides of a balance. So when we do something pleasurable, our balance tips slightly to the side of pleasure. We get a little release of dopamine, our reward neurotransmitter in the brain, and then we feel good. But the way one of the overarching rules governing that balance is that it wants to remain level. It doesn't want to be tipped to pleasure or pain for very long. So no sooner has that happened than our brains will downregulate our own dopamine transmission and our own dopamine production in order to level the balance again. But the brain intentionally overshoots that in order to restore a level balance or what's called homeostasis. And I imagine that as these little neuroadaptation gremlins hopping on the pain side of the balance to bring it level again. But the thing is, the gremlins like it on the balance, so they stay until it's tipped an equal and opposite amount to the side of pain, and that's the come down or the after effect or the hangover. Now, if we wait long enough, the gremlins hop off, that feeling passes, and a level balance or homeostasis is restored. But if we repeat that behavior again and again, we eventually end up with so many gremlins on the pain side of the balance that they fill this whole room. We change our set point and we essentially end up with a balance chronically tilted to the side of pain. That means we have to continue to use our drug just to feel normal. And when we're not using it, we're in a state of withdrawal, craving, irritability, depression, anxiety, and nothing else is enjoyable. Interesting. And so I'm curious to get your take on many different um, perspectives on how addictions are formed. And what I hear you saying is that in some ways is really spurred out of this pursuit of more pleasure where we can become sort of hooked or or have an addictive behavior form or the avoidance of, of some form of pain that manifests that can create the addiction. And I think when people think of addiction, they, you know, they see or, or think of the normal sort of causes, right? That somebody experienced some form of traumatic or adverse event, and it created something that people needed to subside the pain from or avoid or escape or, or numb or deal with. And that's how the addiction manifested. I'm curious from your perspective, is there always a causality? Because I think I've seen addicts that whether it's porn or sex or, or drugs or you know even things like social media, where they don't think that there is any form of cause, that there's nothing that sort of transpired before that, that, that sort of can be labeled as the reason why they're an addict. Yeah. So this is a really important question because it is true that trauma or co-occurring mental illness or other experiences can drive us toward using substances and so in some ways be responsible for the creation of our addiction. But it's also true that we can have the perfect life and still get addicted, that there can in fact be nothing behind the addiction except for the addiction itself. 
And I would also emphasize that sometimes spending too much time trying to figure out why we're addicted is not a worthwhile endeavor. Because even when we discover what that underlying reason may be, once we become addicted, it's a very physiologic, biological phenomenon. And what we need to do is engage in behaviors to get well from that addiction. So although I certainly acknowledge the role of trauma, for example, in the possible etiology of addiction in some cases, I think that the role of trauma can be overstated and that on some level people need to realize that um, addiction can just be caused by being exposed and having access to highly addictive stimuli. And I emphasize again and again that in our modern world, it is the increased access, the almost ubiquitous access to these drugified experiences and substances that makes us all vulnerable to addiction. Yeah, it's, I remember a couple of years ago speaking at a, an all-boys school. It was like this uh, Catholic college, college prep military school, all-boys school. It was like 650 boys. And I was doing some research leading up into this of, of talking to the boys because they wanted me to come in and talk about masculinity and 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 they wanted me to address porn. And I was like, wow, that's, you know, really offloading <laughs> some responsibility onto me. Yeah, right? wow. And, and but anyway, in, in my in my research, I found that a lot of young boys, a lot of young men are are coming into finding pornographic materials between the age of eight and eleven now. And I thought to myself, what a what a challenging thing to find at that age, you know, especially if you've never had anyone talk to you about sex, talk to you about what's happening in the body, you know, none of those things. And so in the school, I just did an exercise. I had a, I had a couple slides and, and at one point this slide, you know, went this, the screen that was up there and said porn on the background and you know, all the boys, 650 boys in the are still, you know, kind of making noise and wrestling around. And I said, okay, the teachers are all going to turn their back. And so all the teachers were in the rafters. And I said, all the teachers turn your back and the parents turn your backs. <laughs> and so they all turn their, they all turn their backs and turn around. And I said, all right, all right, guys, raise your hands if you've watched porn. And these guys were, from, you know, these boys were from grade four all the way up to grade 12. And I would say probably about 95% of those boys put their hands up. And yeah. I was shocked. Mm. I was really shocked, you know. So later on that night, I had a conversation with the parents of all, not all the boys, but whoever wanted to show up and we talked about engaging that conversation. So, so I, you know, I think, I think what you're saying is right, is that we have access to things that we've never had to experience before, you know, right. things like social media that are literally designed to try and capture our attention. And I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but I can't find, I can't seem to help myself, but ask like... <laughs> How do we begin to regulate our systems, you know, our, our, our brains, our nervous systems in a world that is designed to hook us in, in some ways? So I don't necessarily think that we need to talk about strategies specifically, but if you want to just speak to that briefly before we go back into what we were talking about. Yeah, I mean, I think this is the very premise of dopamine nation that that acknowledging that we are living in this drugified world with 24-7 access to these highly reinforcing substances and behaviors that children from a very young age have access to drugs that would have been unimaginable even a generation ago, and that, that we have to take on this very real conversation about what this means about our development, our behavior, our values, you know, how are we going to navigate this really unprecedented time in human history? So I guess to better understand this, that we can have a, a better conversation around, you know, this, the drugified, you know, whether that's social media or, or things like pornography and what's happening. Can you just give us a, a bit of a basic understanding of the neurochemistry of addiction and what's actually taking place within us when we are experiencing an addictive behavior? Sure. So basically the, the, the slide into addiction is when our pleasure pain balance gets weighted to the side of pain such that we then have compulsive urges to repeat the behavior 
uh, not just to get pleasure, but but merely to uh, regain homeostasis. So I think that that's the key piece. We start out using for fun or to solve a problem, but we get to a point where we're using because we're using, right? We get caught up in that vicious cycle of not being able to put it away because our physiology has adapted to its constant presence. And for people who have no personal or family exposure or experience to addiction, I often um, suggest the experiment of just putting your smartphone away for 24 hours. And if you're willing and able to do that, noticing how preoccupied you are, especially in the first 12 hours, thinking about where your phone is, who might've contacted you, what you might be missing, why it's so important to not do the experiment and instead check the phone again, because it doesn't really matter doing the experiment. It wasn't really that important to you in the first place or a million other reasons that you justify to yourself why it makes sense to go grab your phone. And to do that experiment is really to get a little bit of a window in what it's like for people who become addicted, obviously, to a much greater degree with much more significant consequences. And again, physiologically, what's happening is we've basically overloaded our reward pathway with dopamine such that the brain has to adapt. By downregulating our own dopamine production, we enter a dopamine deficit state. And it is that dopamine deficit state that drives us to seek out our drug, again, in order just to restore homeostasis, not not even to feel good, but to stop feeling bad. Hmm. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So how does that differ from, from what's happening in, let's just say like a withdrawal state, like when you're going through withdrawal from uh, your social media usage or from your, you know, your drug of choice, how is that different from what you just described? Or is that a similar mechanism? It's the exact same mechanism, but it can be much more subtle and much more protracted. So acute physical withdrawal tends to last days. This is a phenomenon that can really last weeks or months, or in some cases of severe addiction, even years, just because it requires a lot of work on the part of the brain to restore baseline dopamine levels. And this is what we talk about with the protracted abstinence syndrome. You know, why it's it's often very puzzling when we see people with severe addiction who get into recovery, whose lives are going so much better, and then who relapse, seem to relapse out of the blue. Mm -hmm. And to understand what's going on there is it's really necessary to appreciate that those folks are not walking around with a level balance, right? They're walking around with a balance that's chronically tilted to the side of pain. They're in a dopamine deficit state. And so everything is exertion for them. And they're sort of bombarded with these constant intrusive thoughts of wanting to use. And it's not that they're indulging themselves when they relapse. It's that they're finally giving in to just a relentless onslaught of cravings and physiologic urges to use. Yeah. I mean, it sounds like you have a beautiful amount of empathy for for people that are experiencing this what's it like for you to walk around in our in our world and see see the world that we live in see the modern western culture that we live in through your lens having been somebody that has researched this and and worked with addiction so much and and knows so much about it like what what's your experience with that well i think my my main experience is wanting people to understand where the relentless pursuit of pleasure and comfort leads um, so that they can, in understanding the neuroscience, really reframe their own goals and experiences, reconceptualize why they might be depressed and anxious, and reconsider some of their coping strategies, which typically lean toward trying to increase comfort When in Mm -hmm. fact, doing that may be a very wrong thing for how to feel better. I will also add that as a parent of teenagers, I'm worried for my kids growing up in this world. Um, My kids are exposed to things that I hadn't even heard of of until I was an adult. And I'm, I'm both curious and worried to see what they're going to do with all of that access and all of that information it certainly is a, a very strange time to be growing up. Yeah, I mean, it seemed to be living through 
I mean, a tremendous amount of fear. And I think not only just fear, but there's this kind of confusion that seems to be prominent within our culture that's disorienting for a lot of people. And I think that when people are disoriented, they need some form of certainty. And I think that's where, in some ways, I'm curious to get your thoughts on this, where addictive behavior sets in, because the more disorientation they have, the less certainty that we have, at least when I think about my own addictive behaviors that I've had in the past. I mean, I certainly had a problem. I've talked about this on the show before, but I've certainly had a problem with pornography in my early 20s, you know, where it was hours at a time, you know, sometimes four or five, six hours at a time. And it was was probably the worst in my life when I had the least amount of certainty. You know, it was this really, really took hold where I was very unsure about relationship, career, and 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 was very afraid of what was happening in my life and that's when it took hold the strongest and so i'm curious to get your perspective of you know when we are disoriented when we are confused when we lack certainty in some areas of our life is it easier to move into this addictive behavior and to have this dopamine withdrawal that you're talking about present or or, is, or am i missing the mark there i mean no you're definitely not missing the mark especially since your own experience was that your pornography use was was greatest in a time of, you know, more uncertainty. So clearly, you know, in your experience, those, those things are related. I guess the way that I look at it, though, is that, I mean, life is is always uncertain. I mean, I think probably one of the scariest things about being alive is the ways in which we have no idea what's coming next. Mm. Um, I mean, I, I must say, I mean, I... I deal with that. I feel that I deal with that fear constantly. And I think that, you know, as a defense against that uncertainty and our not knowing, we can resort to all kinds of different defense mechanisms to cope with that, many of them maladaptive. And of course, you know, sort of hiding in our addictions is is one way to do that. But there are other ways as well um, that people sort of manage to try to, I would guess, I would, would say they try to pretend like life is more certain than it is or, or to run away from their awareness of how little control we actually have over our lives. Hmm. One of the important aspects of recovery from addiction um, turns out to be the ability to let go and to realize that we really don't control a whole lot of stuff that happens to us and that, you know, the efforts to try to control the way we feel or what's going to happen next or what other people are doing, are they really just a, you know, they're sort of a mirage. It's a way that we pretend we have a control or convince ourselves that we have control it's really when we embrace how little control we have over our lives that we're able to give up these maladaptive defense mechanisms like like addiction and move into recovery. I don't know if that answered your question, but I hope so. No, yeah, no, no, no. That's that's wonderful. I mean, I I usually say that when we're when I I found for myself, and I've found that a lot of people resonated this that when when I feel the need to be in control, I'm often out of power. That's right. You know, I'm often out of power, and it's and it's because I'm I'm grasping. Alan Watts had this great saying, four words that kind of changed my life. He said, "Belief clings and faith allows." That's right. And I love that idea because I think in many ways, when we are seeking control, we're seeking to believe in something, and we need to grasp. You know, we have to hold on because we we don't like the idea that we might not be standing on solid ground. And so, yeah. do you feel like do you feel as though everyone is susceptible? And, and, and sort of, yeah, do you feel like everyone is susceptible to some form of addiction or can it show up in anyone's life? I used to think that I wasn't susceptible to addiction. I used to think that I had relative immunity to it. Now, I come from a family of people with addiction. My, my father had an alcohol problem. His brother died of alcoholism. But alcohol never did anything for me except make me sleepy. Uh, other drugs, although I've tried a, a limited repertoire really didn't have any effect and I wasn't particularly drug curious. Mm. But what I talk about in the book and what I realized is I really just hadn't met my drug of choice. And it wasn't until oddly 
in middle age, I discovered romance novels and then ultimately progressed to erotica that I realized, oh, wow, I think I'm getting a little bit of an addiction here. Hmm. And that really made me realize, you know, we're living in a time when we're all vulnerable. There are so many new drugs out there, drugs that never existed before, new variants of old drugs. And, and once we find that key that fits into that lock and turns it, you know, there's something convinced there's something for all of us now out there, mm. which really changes the landscape and which really was one of the driving forces behind my writing Dopamine Nation, this idea that we're all vulnerable to addiction and we all need the wisdom of recovery even if you know we have sort of minor quirky or somewhat laughable addictions that we can joke about the same it's the same phenomenon and the potential impact is is real and when you when you say when you use the word drugs i'm assuming that you're not just talking about substance like i would imagine that you're using a much broader context for that so can you can you just contextualize that for for myself and the listeners Sure. So when I'm talking about drugs, I'm really talking about anything that releases a lot of dopamine in the brain's reward pathway, the fundamental difference between something that is potentially addictive and something that isn't, is that addictive things release a lot more dopamine. So that would include not just traditional drugs like cocaine and heroin and cannabis and Xanax, but would also include pornography, gambling, shopping, romance novels, video games, you name it, all of it. Yeah, the video the video games are a big one. I heard a stat that there's this one game, I think it's League of Legends, and there's a tournament that happens and more people watch the final of that tournament than watch the Super Bowl. And that, that, blew, <laughs> that blew me away. I was like, what? <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. like video games have gotten that popular. Okay, you know, like <laughs> that's not a, that's not what that looks era. Like. That's a whole new area. You know, people are watching other people play online. Yeah. So it's a, it's a whole different ballgame. But when it comes to your methodology of, of working with people and, you know, whether wherever they fall on, on the spectrum of, of their relationship to these habits, right? These dopamine habits and, and pursuing pleasure and, and trying to avoid pain. Where do you begin? How do you begin to work with someone that says, you know, I, I think I might have a bit of a problem. Where does that work start for you? Well, I um, kind of have a framework that I use. I've developed this acronym dopamine to describe it. And um, I kind of go through that. And it's what I also teach my residents and fellows and medical students. So I start just by gathering data about what they're using, how much, how often. I mean, that's the D of dopamine stands for data. And that's important because when people say out loud how much they're using and in what way it often brings it into relief and makes it real in a way that it's mm. not when it's just a behavior that is unvoiced. Then I ask them why they use because people have good reasons or they wouldn't do it. And that's the O for objectives. What are their objectives for using? And then the P stands for problems. What are the problems associated with use? So it's important always when dealing with addiction to acknowledge both sides, both what's good about the use and what's not working out so well. And then the A of dopamine stands for abstinence. And that's my early and first intervention when I ask patients to engage in an experiment with me and to essentially do a dopamine fast where they stop using their drug of choice for a period of time, typically a month. And the reason I ask for a month is because that's the minimum amount of time in my experience patients need in order to reset their reward thresholds, in order for those gremlins to hop off the pain side of the balance and for homeostasis to be restored. And when I ask them to do that, obviously I don't ask patients who might experience life-threatening withdrawal to do that. But for those who will not have a serious physical life-threatening withdrawal and who can stop, I ask them to notice how in the first couple of weeks, they'll feel worse. That's because without using their balance and all those gremlins will tip to the side of pain. They'll experience the universal symptoms of withdrawal, anxiety, irritability, insomnia, dysphoria, craving. But if they just keep going, it's time limited. The gremlins will hop off. They'll start to regenerate their own dopamine. And if they can get to a month, I would say about 80% of patients come back in feeling a lot better. Anxiety is better. 
depression is better, they feel physically restored. And that's almost universally for whatever the drug is. So if it's a sex addiction, I ask for no orgasms with themselves or others for that time period. If it's cannabis, then it's no cannabis. So whatever the drug is, ask them to to avoid that drug or that subcategory within the larger group. And then you know, the M uh, of the dopamine acronym stands for mindfulness. That's where they learn to observe their raw and hard emotions, but not try to do anything to change the way they feel. And that's super counterculture because of course we're trained to run from feeling bad or to take something or to do something. Instead, I say, no, you just sit with it. It's really hard, but just tolerate it. Because what, what you'll notice then is it it does pass, right? It seems like it never will in the moment, but if you just wait, it will pass over like a wave. And then the I of dopamine stands for insight. And this is key piece of it, that when we are in our addiction, we often cannot clearly see cause and effect. We don't see how our drug use impacts our life. But when we get some time away from it and we look back, we're able to see more clearly how our use really is impacting our lives, impacting our relationships, contrary to our values. So that's the insight of the dopamine acronym. And then when people come back, I ask them the pros and cons of using or not using. And then the N stands for next steps and the E stands for experiment. That's where we talk about, okay, if you're going to go back to using and want to use in more moderation, which is usually what people want to do, then what that's what is that going to look like? How often will you use? How much will you use? What are the conditions of you of use? What are some self-binding strategies that you can implement to protect yourself against slipping back into immoderate or unhealthy use? And so that's generally the approach. Yeah, wonderful. Thank you for that. I appreciate you laying that out. I feel like that's it's a very like robust system that I feel like people can hear and begin to maybe implement. Do you have just curious on that note, do you have resources on your site or you know through your work that walk people through that dopamine acronym well i mean it's clearly laid out in the book so that's yeah, really the major resource um i don't i don't i'm not on social media and i don't have a big so i don't have you know like a, a presence in that way but but the okay. book the book lays it all out i'm curious you mentioned you mentioned weed there before and i think there's a you know there's some research is starting to surface around things like, you know, ayahuasca and psilocybin and MDMA as being viable treatments towards things like severe depression. And in some cases, supporting with addiction. I'm, I'm curious to get your, your personal take on that. Maybe, maybe not from like a professional standpoint, but a personal standpoint indeed to, to see, you know, do you feel like, or is, do you feel like the research is starting to show that things like psilocybin are supportive for supporting people with things like with certain addictions? Yeah. So this is a, this is a tough question to answer because the research truly is very preliminary and is highly dependent on the selection of mm. appropriate patients. And my concern with these agents is that if actually deployed, you know, in the general public as a treatment, that the very stringent self-selecting process to make sure that the people who undergo the treatment are the, the people who could really benefit from it will be almost impossible to implement. And that instead you'll have a self-selecting group who want to do that kind of treatment, who also are the potentially most vulnerable to the harms of that kind of treatment. So it's mm -hmm. not that I'm saying it, it would never work. Um, I believe that it probably could be helpful for a small minority of individuals but I don't know if the potential benefits outweigh the potential harms. And with any medical treatment, that's always the question that we need to ask. Not does the treatment work for a given individual, but on an individual and a population level, do the benefits outweigh the harms? And we're certainly very far from knowing whether or not that is the case. Mm -hmm. I would also add that I am generally skeptical of a, you know, simple solution to a complicated problem. Mm -hmm. 
addiction is definitely a complicated problem and it's a chronic relapsing and remitting problem, which is probably going to need a chronic relapsing and remitting intervention, not a, you know, a one-time or two-time or even three-time psychotherapy-assisted psilocybin experience. Mm. So I guess to sum up my viewpoint, I'm skeptical, but trying to be open. Right. Yeah, that's fair. I appreciate that. <laughs> I appreciate that. I couldn't help but, but get into that question. How do we begin to, you know, I think about my, you know, the people listening to this interview and listening to what you're saying and, and maybe identifying as someone who overuses social media, you know, also, I just love that we have terminology for this, right? Like doom scrolling, right? That we right. catch ourselves just sort of <laughs> constantly and we know that we're caught, you know, we're, mm-hmm. we know that we're caught in the hamster wheel. How do we begin to redirect or channel or utilize that energy in a different way, in a different direction? And I know you've laid out the the dopamine acronym and, and some of those some of those pieces, but I'm curious for people that maybe aren't dealing with a substance abuse issue, but you know clearly can't seem to get off of Instagram. What would you say? Would you say that dopamine fasting is the best place to start? Is you know giving it up for thirty days the best best place to begin and setting some very like stringent rules around that? Or or what would you say? Yeah, so I think Instagram and other social media apps, really the same rules apply, and I think a good first pass intervention is the dopamine framework and a dopamine fast. Now, if four weeks is not possible then do it for a week. Even a single day is challenging for many of us. But that that is truly what I would, would recommend because it's important to have that initial break in order to restore the balance and reset reward pathways. And it's much easier to go from a level balance into moderation than to go from overuse to dialing it back. It's just much, mm. much harder to do that. The other thing that I would just emphasize is that, you know, social media is tapping into our fundamental desire for human connection, which is at its face a very adaptive uh, urge and also makes sense from an evolutionary perspective, right? So we are social creatures when we come together in groups, we're more likely to find mates, we're more likely to be able to protect ourselves from predators we can come together to better utilize scarce resources. So there are all kinds of reasons that we come together. And we do know that oxytocin, the love hormone that's secreted when we make intimate bonds, directly stimulates dopamine neurons to release dopamine in the reward pathway. So it's all tied in together. And this desire for connection is human and good What's happened or what can happen with social media is that it become can become drugified where all of a sudden the complexity of human interactions and the effortfulness of human interactions is taken away and all we need is a, you know, one tap and a swipe and we have access to a million beautiful faces. So, you know, that's why I think it's important to uh, take a break and and then go back with kind of renewed goals and and motivation to use it differently and in a healthy and adaptive way however the person defines that yeah well well said thank you for that i mean it seems like you know, as you we were speaking i couldn't help but get the sense that in in some ways yeah i mean i can't help but think that part of you know as you were speaking there that part of the polarization that we're experiencing is a byproduct of exactly what you're talking about you know that we want to pursue feeling good and so we move into spaces where there's no disagreement you know where our opinion can be validated where we can feel good about our belief system and what we're saying and other people will reinforce that and suddenly we find ourselves in a space where there's there's not only maybe a couple people but hundreds and thousands and tens of thousands of people who are wanting to do that And it almost sounds like what you're saying is that to extract ourselves from that is to have to learn or retrain ourselves how to regulate our system, you know, how to regulate our nervous system and to move out of that fight, flight, or freeze response mechanism and into a more down-regulated homeostasis. So are there, are there certain practices that, that you have or that you recommend for clients 
on a daily basis to manage their their nervous system and, and manage this dopamine system that that seems to drive us up the wall, but also drive our behavior in, in so many ways. Yeah. So in addition to just broadly trying to avoid highly dopaminergic substances and behaviors that tilt our pleasure pain balance too far to the side of pleasure, I also recommend intentionally seeking out painful and uncomfortable activities because by gently pressing on the pain side of the balance, we can get those neuroadaptation gremlins to hop on the pleasure side and in fact, try to reset our pleasure pain pathways to the side of pleasure. And we see this again and again, it's um, related to the science of hormesis, where for example, exercising, vigorous exercise, although in the moment painful, as an after effect releases large amounts of dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, and other feel-good chemicals, which endure uh, far beyond uh, the activity itself. I also talk about things like cold water immersion, or even more subtle forms of pain, just for example, engaging in an intellectually challenging activity um, without letting ourselves interrupt ourselves by checking our phones. So putting the phones away and tolerating other frustration that comes when we get to a hard spot in our thinking and not letting ourselves distract ourselves by doing something else in that moment, doing creative things where the outcome is uncertain. And again, learning to deal with that frustration, developing frustration tolerance in the moment. This is all about building up those mental calluses for patients, for example, who come in describing social anxiety. I will recommend exposure therapy, and that's graded exposure to the thing that makes them anxious. And over time, what they find is that they're not only able to do that thing that gave them anxiety, but they can even start to enjoy it. So it's all about resetting the nervous system, as you say, uh, resetting those reward pathways in a healthy and adaptive way and making that part of our daily schedule. Yeah, well well said. Thank you for that. I love that. Yeah, I think you said mental callousness, like to, to just be able to like harden that part of ourselves. It's right. so well articulated. I mean, I, I am reading uh, The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt right now. And, it's, and he's talking about this in depth and, and a lot of the research that they've come out with that he references in other books around the impact of social media, you know, especially on young teenage girls and depression rates and the anxiety rates and the suicide rates within the younger generation is dramatic. You know, it's really dramatic. I mean, I cannot fathom or imagine having to be a teenager. You know, I look back on on my life and I'm like, man, I don't I don't know how I would have fared. Like truly, I do not know how I would have fared through that. I don't I can't imagine it have going have having gone very well, you know, knowing how I felt and knowing what I was experiencing and yeah. and et cetera. And so mm-hmm. what do you say to parents, you know, who who come to you and are concerned about the the impact that, you know, we're talking about this dopamine system and social media and these these sort of virtual drugs that we can all consume now? What would you say to the parents that are listening to this and are wanting to support their children in a more effective manner? Should we regulate time with social media or how do they speak to their kids about these very addictive substances that are now normal? The first thing I say is that they should be modeling the behavior that they want to see in their own children. I'm sure, I'm sure I, that goes over well. <laughs> yeah. yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, you know, parents come in, they, my kid's on, on his phone all the time, and then you find out that the parent's on the phone in equal or amount or more. Right. So making it a family activity. And then just talking about talking about it, you know, openly acknowledging the problem. I really emphasize educating kids about the neuroscience, getting them to reflect on how they feel when they're on their phones or playing video games versus how they feel when they get off and noticing that drop off and the dopamine deficit state that follows um, the engagement with screens and with their devices. And then to have them reflect on how that fall off that occurs right after they disengage might actually have persistent and lingering effects and be part of what's contributing toward them not being able to feel good about themselves or enjoy their lives or uh, might be contributing to, you know, clinical depression and anxiety. And then, yeah, especially parents of young children, I really recommend 
not giving kids access to screens at all unless in a highly supervised setting for short amounts of time. So, you know, for kids younger than 13, maybe no more than one to two hours a week, honestly, and having the family do that time on the screen together. Once kids get to be teenagers and they're off, you know, in middle school and high school, all bets are off. All the kids have phones now. Even if your kid doesn't have a phone, they'll watch somebody else's phone. You know, my my younger son certainly saw pornography around age eight or nine because he saw it on his friend's phone and it, while his friend was looking at it. You know, I have no control over that. So our control is limited at best as parents, but what control we have, uh, we should exert to protect our, our children and their young minds. Really the you know, the quagmire that is the internet. And then once they do have access, having a lot of open discussions with them about their use, about safe use, about what drugs look like, because drugs are different than they used to be. They're harder. They come in many different forms. Um, And just really raising kids' awareness, giving them information so that they can make the best choices possible in a really challenging and unprecedented circumstance. Well, this conversation has felt like a, a breath of fresh air. And so I, I appreciate everything you've had to had to say. And I think just on that last point, you know, my, my wife and I have a five and a half month old nice. son. And congratulations. Thank you. Yeah. And we've started to have these conversations already, you know, about mm-hmm. screen time, about social media, you know, about how we how we talk to him about drugs, you know, yeah. and and what that means and what that term means and what it includes. And, you know, and I really appreciate your insight. I feel like you have, for me personally, in some way, better equipped me to have that conversation and to look at that perspective. And so thank you for for your work and for this conversation. Your your book is out now, so people can go and check that out, Dopamine Nation. Any final words that you want to leave people with? I just want to give you the opportunity to say anything that maybe we didn't touch on or, or, or cover that's within the book that you feel like is vital. No, I think you did a great job covering it. Um, congratulations on your new parenthood. I will say that being a parent has been by far the most joyous and rewarding thing that I have ever done. And uh, I'm always delighted when I when I hear that people choose parenthood. And I think that you're right, you and your wife are absolutely right to think about having these conversations early, to make them very open and transparent. I love how you were transparent here on the podcast about your own pornography problems. And, you know, at the right age that you will decide I would also be transparent with your child about that. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, well said. Thank you so much. We will have the link for your work, for your book, Dopamine Nation, in the show notes. For everyone that's out there listening, don't forget to share this episode with somebody that you know will benefit from it, whether they are a parent, whether they're an individual that has gone through addiction themselves, whether they have somebody in their family that's navigating through this question, or they just want to learn more about our dopamine system. So don't forget to leave us a rating and review. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. 